Hey, this is Steve Lukather, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. When I dove deep into the Beatles, I I did it in a way that a lot of other people did, which is I I got those two volumes of the, uh, basically it was the greatest hits, and then memorizing those hits, those tracks, slowly made me go, okay, well, what album was that song on? That's how you get into the Beatles catalog. That's when you find, you know, For No One and I Will and all these other songs. You know, I felt like, I felt like all these years, I, I could have been listening to these songs and I wasn't. Today's guest is Richard Marks, an American adult contemporary and pop rock singer and songwriter. Marx was born in September 1963 in Chicago, Illinois, as the only child of Ruth Gildew, a former singer, and Dick Marx, a jazz musician and founder of a jingle company in the early 1960s. Richard Marx began his career in music at age five, singing commercial jingles written by his father's company. Marx was 17 and living in Highland Park, Illinois, when a tape of his songs ended up in the hands of Lionel Richie. Richie thought Marx had talent and told the teen, I can't promise you anything, but you should come to L.A. Marx's self-titled debut album went triple platinum in 1987, and his first single, Don't Mean Nothing, reached number three in the charts. Between 1987 and 1994, Marx had 14 top 20 hits, including three number one singles. His first seven singles all reached the top five. His hits during the late 1980s and 1990s included Endless Summer Nights, Hold On to the Nights, Right Here Waiting, Now and Forever, Hazard, and At the Beginning with Donna Lewis. Marx has written or collaborated on songs with other artists such as This I Promise You by NSYNC and Dance With My Father by Luther Vandross. The latter won several Grammy Awards. Impressively, songs written or co-written by Marx have topped the charts in four different decades. And now Richard Marx is an author, having recently added Stories to Tell to his incredible list of accomplishments. His book is a remarkably candid, entertaining memoir about the art and business of music. Welcome, Richard Marks. I, uh, I wonder if you could tell me about your Beatles origin story. When did you discover them? You're only a couple of years uh, my senior, so we're not exactly first-generation fans, but uh, we're not spring chickens either. Can you tell me about how that discovery came about? Um, well, you know, I was born in 63. And so the honest answer is I, I didn't really 
discover the Beatles. I mean, I, I knew about the Beatles, of course, when I was a little kid, but by the time I was four or five years old, I became a monkeys fan. I, be, you know, I, I became obsessed with the, what people considered the knockoff, you know? Um, and I'm still a monkeys fan to this day. And I, I love a lot of their records so much, but I didn't, I was too young to, to understand or process what was going on, what was being written about, who was writing the songs, all that stuff. And so I just, I watched the monkeys TV show and I worshiped Davy Jones. I want, you know, I thought he was the coolest guy in the world. And I loved that whole band. I loved how funny they were. And, and so I, I remember, uh, I remember some school bus rides getting into arguments with kids about, you know, they were Beatles fans. They, they were totally team Beatles and I was team monkeys. I'd like to go back and find those kids and apologize to them. <laughs> um, and so I didn't really get smart about the Beatles until I was older, until I was about 10 or 12. And although, you know, it was one of those things where and you, uh, there are countless examples of this where, Artists, whether musical artists or writers, you know, novelists, uh, thinkers, actors, whatever, that you're well aware of them, and you may you may not even have any kind of pejorative feelings about them, but they're just not your thing. They're they're not on your radar like other things are. And when the Beatles got on my radar, it was really when I guess it would have been I was. Uh, I want to say I was about <clears throat> 10 or 11 and FM radio was in one of its heydays. And I, I grew up in Chicago and, and the, the top 40 stations there started playing, got to get you into my life again, as if it were a new single. And it just made me go back and start listening to the Beatles catalog. And in a way it was like this <clears throat> really amazing experience like if you were older and you were a Beatles fan from the get-go so when they hit when they did the Ed Sullivan show I guess that was 64 right Mm -hmm. if you were knocked on your ass by the Beatles when they arrived like so many of my musical friends and and just friends in general you sort of had to experience the Beatles as they went along so you'd, you'd wait in between albums you'd wait in between tracks you wait in between movies to discover the Beatles after they had broken up and after their catalog was complete was like every day was Christmas because <laughs> I, I started to dive back. It's almost like we have what we have now when you find a TV show, you know, that's been on for six seasons and you've never watched it and you watch the first episode and you go, holy shit, I love this show. And then you go, wait, there's six seasons I can binge. You know, <laughs> it's that kind of thing. It was that kind of thing. And I just dove headfirst into their catalog and and watched the movies and, and became um, a totally different kind of fan than I had been to the Monkees or any other any other musicians. Um, learning about um, not just their impact, but what but the intricacies and and with all due respect to George Martin, um, just starting to learn and read about what they contributed along, aside from just being the band members and the, and the songwriters. Um, similarly, it's when I, to this day, I think Sam Cooke is my favorite singer of all time. And 
And the only thing that makes Sam Cooke even more impressive to me is that he wrote all those songs and produced them. So when I, as a, as a young musician and a, and a young person thinking about uh, engaging in a life in music and in a career in music, when I would find out that someone was more than just the pretty face, it was, you know, triply impressive to me. And, and the Beatles t- to this day, they continue to amaze me. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll hear a track that maybe I only listened to once or twice and, and I'll go, wow, I had, I, like, I, I, I was asleep on this one too, you know? I love your metaphor about, and I will now be stealing it shamelessly, your metaphor about um, discovering that television show that somehow we've missed, right? Yeah. And uh, and yet everybody else has loved it for like 10 years. And, right. And the gift of being able to experience it full flower. You know, that's that's the beauty of what our children and future generations will be able to do, right? You know, right while we're talking, Beatles fans are being made this very instant. Somewhere, somebody's like, what the hell? This is amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I know that that's true. And I just, there's a part of me that wishes I could be sort of like Zelig and, and experience it, you know, like just be all over the world when people are hearing the Beatles for the first time and having their minds blown. Yeah, it's a before and after effect. Yeah, totally. Like like you said, um, we always knew they were there, but until you've walked through that looking glass um, or at least looked into it, you, you just don't know. Yeah. For me, it, uh, you know, while you were listening to the, the monkeys, I think I was uh, I was even slumming it further and listening to uh, the banana splits. That was dude. Too- so was I. Yeah, but they were fun, right? They 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 rode go karts. I loved that show. I loved the theme. Oh, the thing was excellent. Yeah, I bought. I am. I remember. I must not have bought it because I was too little. But I think my parents must have bought it for me because I had the. There was a Banana Splits album, and I, it's probably still in a box somewhere in some storage facility. I wouldn't have thrown it away, but I remember being a huge Banana Splits fan for about ten minutes. Now, before you discovered the Beatles, you were already singing, though, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Well, I guess I was born with an innate sense of uh, intonation because when I was a little kid walking around, my parents told me that the first song that made an impact on me was Hang On Sloopy. Mm. And I would and they bought me this little um, it was even prior to what they used to call close and play. It was this little it looked like a like a, a fourth of a size of a lunchbox and it had a little handle on it and you would put a 45 into this machine and it would play the 45. And my parents bought that. It was a little plastic thing that I'm sure just sounded God awful. <laughs> um, and they bought me, you know, a few 45s, certainly a monkey's 45. And, um, but Hang On Sloopy was the first song apparently that I would just walk around my house singing over and over and listening to it over and over when I was three or four. Um, and because of the way I was singing it, like my parents noticed that I wasn't just like singing randomly. I was singing it really in tune. And so it kind of made sense. My mother was and is, she's still with us, um, an amazing singer, like a really technically great singer. My father was a brilliant musician, could not sing to save his life, but he was a vocal coach, believe it or not, because he could coach people to adjust their intonation and, and phrasing and things like that without having 
the ability to actually sing himself. And he was a brilliant pianist as well. So they, they knew that their little boy walking around the house could sing. And, and my father had, uh, the year I was born in 63, started his own jingle company in Chicago. And he was writing and producing and arranging massively successful commercials just the music, just, he just wrote the music to the slogans and stuff. And he would create these amazing productions. And, and so when I was five or six years old, he got hired to do a, a, uh, a session that they wanted some little boy to sing. And he said, look, I'm, I'm sorry for the nepotism, but my son is actually really good and he's five. And so they brought me down to the studio and put me in front of the microphone. And my dad taught me the the, the song and I sang it and I think I did it in like two takes and they went great. And that was it. I was now doing commercials for him. And, and I grew up as much in the recording studio as I did in a classroom. Oh, that's wonderful. And, and your dad was a, a jazz musician, right? Yeah, he was a, he started as a jazz pianist and was very successful at that in Chicago in the, in the late fifties, really in the heyday of the jazz scene there. So he played these clubs that were, uh, that are now sort of legendary, Mr. Kelly's and the Leoloa and the London house. He was, he was, he had, he packed them in every weekend. Um, but he felt like, and he made a few jazz records, but he felt like that that was a really limited <clears throat> career for him. And when he had the opportunity to get into this other business, you know, he used to remind me that the the business in which he became tremendously successful the jingle business didn't exist when he was in college and the idea that you know he would end up being really successful at something that didn't even exist at you know when he was growing up is just still such a mind-blowing concept um but yeah luckily he got into the jingle business and and sort of owned it for 20 25 years well that's cool and it's kind of like um, our own day, right? Where there are all these tech jobs that exist yeah. that nobody even had a glint of an idea that they would happen in 2005. Exactly. Exactly. Staggering about technology. So how do you go from, from the guy singing the jingles to the guy who discovers the Beatles to uh, the fellow who begins writing songs? When did you start writing songs? Well, the, that transition was very specific in that um, I had this period of two or three years where I'd say from out from like age 10 to 12, let's say, um, I had an uncle who I still have, uh, and I just worshiped him. He was so cool. He was just, he was young and he, and we, he just took, took a liking to me beyond just being an uncle. And he became like my best friend. And, and I used to hang out with him when he wasn't working and, we would go get burgers and, you know, like that thing that if you're lucky enough, especially as a boy, to have a family member, a cousin or an uncle who's older, who you just think is the coolest cat in the world. And he was really into country music. And so for a couple of years, I, I really only listened to country music of that day. So I was I got immersed in Merle Haggard and Conway Twitty and Waylon Jennings. And and I kind of didn't listen to a lot of pop music during that period of time. And then in 1975, when I was 12, my father 
I'll never forget this. I came home from school and my father, uh, when he got home from work, he said, listen, I know you're really into this country music stuff, which, and there's a lot of really good stuff there, but I heard an album and I really want to play it for you. And he, he had a really nice little music room in his study. And he sat me down between, you know, sitting in the middle of the room facing the speakers. And he played me Paul Simon's still crazy after all these years album. And I think it was in that 48 minutes of listening to that album from top to bottom with my father that made me think I want to be a songwriter. It really affected me so deeply and changed everything for me. And, I, and listening to the chord progressions and the sophistication that Paul Simon was, was, was displaying, you know, as opposed to, and no disrespect, cause I still love that country music, but the simplicity of country music and the same four chords. And, and then I was hearing these, these wacky chord progressions and these melodies that were so different and musicianship and arrangements. And, and it was, that was it. And I, I remember at 12 thinking, I don't know how I'm going to write songs, but that's what I want to do. And I think it was within two years, I started writing, making up songs, you know, to try to get Lynn Harwich to go out with me or notice me, you know, whatever girl I was crushing on at the time. That was really the impetus for me to finally seize the day and start to write songs as I was trying to get laid. (laughs) And that's a story the Beatles could share too, of course. (laughs) Pretty much every, pretty much every musician who, who says, and I mean this gay or straight, if, if they, if they say that they didn't get into music or, or into songwriting to try to get laid, they're lying. We'll be back with more from Richard Marks after these messages. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back with Richard Marks. Did you ever uh, call on your Paul Simon and your or your Beatles knowledge when you were a fledgling songwriter? Um, I, I, not to the extent of I remember the Paul Simon stuff being so sophisticated to me that I felt like it was out of my league and that I would just appreciate it, much like classical music or certain other songwriters. Um, but I, I really just sort of tried to start emulating the music of the day. So I was writing songs that were, I wasn't really writing rock and roll songs until maybe a year into it. My first batch of songs were ballads and mid-tempos and, um, you know, that sort of, even like what McCartney was doing maybe in the 70s the, with My Love and uh, stuff like that. It just felt like. I felt like that was natural for me as a, as a singer. And I was mostly writing on the piano. So it took me a while. It was definitely an arc. You know, the first couple of songs of the first couple of years of songwriting were, I was basically just repeating myself, you know, like trying to write the same song until it was good kind of thing. Yeah. Um, And then I started, you know, 
relying on some guitar knowledge I had and, and then just experimenting more. And then it really was, I think, um, some of the experimentation really did go back to Beatles and, and just trying to uh, be melody driven. You know, I was, I am a huge Lennon fan, but the melodies that Paul McCartney has created, George too, actually, were, were so impactful. I think that they, they definitely uh, influenced me for sure, even, even at that young age. You know, the 70s, uh, with all due respect to the 60s, right, who did produce the Beatles, although in a way, I guess the 50s produced the Beatles. Yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> they seem to be reacting to it all the way to the end of their career. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, with all due respect to that decade, the 70s are such a rich time. You know, the charts were just alive. You could have a song like My Love or Silly Love Songs, and then what, you know, the Star Wars Cantina band could be number one. And, yeah. And then the Bee Gees and then Chicago or what have you. Yeah. The crazy or soul and funk, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the seventies were, um, for me, you just, you just referenced it. You know, what, what really came crashing into my life in the seventies, you know, I was, as I mentioned, I was a big Sam Cooke fan. Um, even when I was a little kid and, listening to chain gang and cupid and a change is going to come which is to me maybe still the greatest song ever written maybe um and then the 70s r&b came in and then earth went in fire and that was it for me i mean i and and i really <clears throat> i mean I, I at that point i i didn't do that same thing i had done with country music where i shut most everything else out i was always listening to everything but i was obsessed with earth Wind and fire i'm still obsessed with the I am album and the faces album. And I, they sound as fresh to me today as they did then. And, and that music is the most joyful experience I've ever had listening to music. Oh, for sure. Yeah. All, um, after the love is gone, popped yeah. on two nights ago in the car on our way home from dinner. And I was, you know, we just stopped and listened to it in silence. Yeah, you it, can't beat it. You can't, that whole album. Yeah, it's a great record, and that recording's just absolutely arresting. Maurice White, who, who was the leader and lead singer of Wind of Fire, <clears throat> was maybe I think the most underrated musician in our business. He and I got to work with him and know him, and um, he he was just he was on a level with Prince and and anyone else in terms of ingenuity and and just the way he thought. The, the, his musical thought process was just unbelievable, unbelievable. Well, for my money, uh, his, uh, you know, Earth, Wind and Fire's cover version of Got to Get You Into My Life is the best Beatles cover version. Hands down. Hands down. I totally agree. So when it comes to the Beatles, do you have like a favorite album or anything that uh, that you come back to again and again, like the I Am album? There's not, I mean, Revolver is way up there for me. I guess if I were, it, that's such a difficult, that's a, such a difficult question, much like Earth, Wind & Fire, because even though there are certain Earth, Wind & Fire albums where, yeah, I'm not crazy about that cut or those two songs don't really kill me, but that song is so good, whatever. Um, that's, I guess that's true of a lot of Beatles albums, but um you know, the, the, my real when I dove deep into the Beatles, I I did it in a way that a lot of other people did, which is I I got those two volumes of the uh, 
basically it was the greatest hits, but it was, you know, red and blue. Yeah. The red and blue albums. And that, and, and then memorizing those hits, those tracks slowly made me go, okay, well, what album was that song on? What, what, what are the, what are the other songs, you know, that are on the same album as please, please me. And, and that's how you, that's how you get into the Beatles catalog. And then you find, that's when you find, you know, for no one and, I will, and all these other songs that you go. How could I have not? Kn- how could these songs have existed all this time and I didn't know them? You know, I, I felt like I felt like all these years I I could have been listening to these songs and I wasn't. Well, they were they were right there waiting for you. Oh boy, look at you with the sub reference. Hey, I've got uh, I I have deep Richard Marks knowledge too. Oh boy, you, you were part of my soundtrack, uh, uh, very certainly. Um, it, you know, thinking about uh, about those red and blue albums, that was sort of my gateway too, uh, and um, and they were so valuable to me for exactly the reason you just stated. In addition, um, I remember at some point having the realization, you know, holding them side by side, that the same band that did "Love Me Do" uh, did uh, "Get Back." Yeah. And and thinking, my God, you know, it must have been decades later, but it was what five years or something. Right. That's the thing, Ken. That's the thing is that we, when you try to conceptualize what they did in the time period that they did it in, it's like my brain explodes. You know. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's unparalleled that kind of trajectory and that growth as a musician, which you would know better than I. Um, to be able to, yeah, to grow at that speed. Yeah. And I will say, you know, if, if you put the red and blue albums in front of me and you held a gun to my head and you said, you have to pick one, I would just say, just kill me. (laughs) Shoot me. (laughs) Yeah. How do you give up the one with Norwegian wood to save Sergeant Pepper in a day in the life? As beautiful as those are, you can't. Exactly. You know, know what's beautiful though, is we don't actually have to face those questions at least. We hopefully don't. So, uh, tell me about uh, Lionel Richie and his involvement, or or not, in in your movement toward uh, you know our joyous discovery of you in 1987. Well, his involvement was uh, really being a catalyst. Uh, you know, along with Earth, Wind, and Fire, if, if there was anyone who came close to Earth, Wind, and Fire for me at that time, it was the Commodores. And and I won't say exclusively, but primarily because of Lionel. Um, I loved the band. I loved their live show. I saw them in concert once or twice. Um, I thought uh, Clyde Orange, the other singer in the Commodores, was great. The guy that sang Brick House. And, mm-hmm. um, but Lionel just was such a unique guy and, and his songwriting and I don't know I just I was I was I was kind of obsessed with with him and the Commodores as I was Earthman and Fire and when I was in my senior starting my senior year of high school I was one of the youngest in my class so I was just turning 17 um, I, I had written a handful of songs four or five songs which I had done these really kind of barbaric demos of and and a friend of mine who was a year ahead of me was now in college and his roommate knew a guy who knew a guy who they thought maybe worked with the Commodores in 
And I was like, okay. And they said, but we're going to send your tape to this guy, to that guy, to this guy, and see if we can get it to that guy. And, and about four months later, my phone rang at home at my parents' house, and it was Lionel Richie calling me. Wow. And I, I just remember my face just like, like I'd been punched in the face. You know, we, we, your eyes fl- you know, flitter. And um, he talked to me for about 20 minutes. And he said, you know, I, I, I get a lot of tapes. And he said, and I listen to yours, and I, I think you've really got the goods. I think you're really talented. And you should hear my first four or five songs, man. He said, you're miles ahead of where I was. And, and he was so encouraging and so gracious and so kind. And he spent 20 minutes on the phone with this kid he didn't know at all. He didn't really know anyone who knew me. He just heard my tape and called me on, on the phone himself. That's staggering. And he gave me his number and and he said, look, I, I don't want your parents to come hunting me down to kill me, but I I feel like you just need to get out to L.A., man, because you can't do it from Chicago. you you got to come out to L.A. And I scrapped any plans to go to college and <laughs> with my parents' blessing, I have to say. And I, as soon as I graduated from high school, I, I went out to L.A. within a month or so. Lionel was just in the middle of doing his first solo album or the early stages of it. And I went by the studio to meet him and he, he got me to sing background vocals on you are, which was one of the, I guess the second single from the album. It was a massive hit. Oh, it's a great tune. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great song. And then he, when I, when I did the background vocals on that in the group with, with him and these other singers, he said, man, I love your voice so much. And, why don't you come back tomorrow? I've got another song you can sing on. And and then he, in, somewhere in the span of those couple of days, he said something to me as we were leaving the studio that was so remarkable. He, he I remember he put his hand on my shoulder and said, hey, listen, man, I don't know that I have much else for you to do. There might be some more background vocals on something down, you know, in, as we go. But I just want you to know that if I'm in this room, meaning the studio, if I'm in this room, you're welcome to be in this room. And I just looked at him and he said, you know, if whether you're working or if I have anything for you to do or not, you're welcome to just be here and watch and, and soak it in and, and learn. And I just looked at him and I said, man, I can't thank you enough. And I said, but you don't know what you just said because I'm going to be here every day. And he went, then be here every day. And I was. And in fact, I remember in the liner notes to that first album, he he thanked, you know, a ton of people and he put me on this list with a couple of the background singers and he even put who never missed a day. And he was, and it's true. I, and I just watched him make that record. And I, I learned so much about production and engineering and mic technique. And it was like going to hit record college, you know? And then I ended up coming back and singing on the second album, but, and we just became friendly. And through that period of time, and uh, we're friends to this day. And and he introduced me to Kenny Rogers, uh, recommended me to Kenny Rogers as a background singer. And that's what led to me getting my first songs recorded by Kenny. And so I can't I can't really state emphatically enough the impact that Lionel Richie had on my life on at just simply by being gracious an amazingly generous of spirit, right? Generous to, and, and not just to me. I mean, he just is this guy. He's, 
he's incredibly kind. Anybody that's ever met him for two seconds, there's no one that's ever met Lionel Richie even for 30 seconds and thought, oh, what a dick. <laughs> there's, they don't exist. There's no one that exists because it's impossible. He's so charming. And of course, there are, there are multi-levels to him. And I've seen him, you know, get angry and I've seen him be a, a normal person, but he's at his core generous and gracious and classy and elegant as a, as a human being. And I just can't, I can't believe my good fortune that I got to be in his path, that I somehow pulled him into mine. And, um, you know, I, every once in a while I text him and I just say, just thinking about you and wanted to thank you again for changing my life. And he, he always texts me back, you know, the sweetest thing and laughs and, when we when we run into each other here and there, we hug like I hug him like like what he has represented in my life, like an angel. He's been like an angel in my life, you know. And he's he uh, he's been obviously rightly feted and celebrated over his career. But I don't know that even we've given him enough credit as one of the great American songwriters because there's a period there. Uh, with the Commodores, obviously well into his solo career, where he's churning out hit songs like Lennon and McCartney. He's writing them almost with ease. Yeah, and mostly by himself. Yeah, I mean, he's he is Lennon and McCartney in this case. He's yeah. coming up with these incredibly poignant songs. I remember, you know, being depressed or something about a breakup and hearing Still, you know. It, yeah, yeah. It just slaughtered me. You know, it made it worse in, in some ways, but uh, of course. at least I felt like somebody out there knew what I was feeling. Yeah, his, his level of craft to this day is, uh, you know, as a songwriter, he's, he's almost unparalleled. His And I've said it over the years. I've said, you know, Lionel Richie, whether you love what he does or not, is to me the Irving Berlin of our time. You know, he, there's no one who's written. I mean, there are there's only a handful and he's he's at the top of that list. Absolutely. Um, so tell me uh, about the Berlin Wall and singing help. Oh, well, that was just uh a really wonderful um, sort of coincidence that I was touring. I was touring like a madman. We were on the second album, uh, repeat offender, everything was firing on all cylinders and I was headlining uh, pretty much all around the world, but I hadn't really broken through in, in Germany as I had had wanted to. There were other parts of Europe where I was doing really well. I was, I was, you know, playing the Royal Albert Hall in London. and But uh, I got an op- opportunity to open for Tina Turner in stadiums in Germany and to do a whole month-long tour with Tina as her opening act. And it happened to be when the wall came down. And when we played in Berlin, um, I was doing my, we were doing my basic set and I had heard this pretty incredible version of Help by an Australian singer named John Farnham. And John Farnham is a name that's probably unfamiliar to most, certainly most Americans don't know who John Farnham is, but there's not a soul in Australia who doesn't know who John Farnham is. He's the most successful singer in the history of the country. And at one time, back when I became a fan of his in the 80s, 
one out of every three households had a John Farnham album in, in Australia. That's how successful he was. <laughs> and it still is. He's like, he's, he's their favorite son. Um, and he's an incredible singer. And he did this version of Help. He, he arranged it as a ballad, as a piano ballad, a big power ballad. And I really loved what he did with it, but it was so vocally challenging that I thought, well, I can't, you know, I'm not John Farnham. I can't sing this. But then I just lowered the key, uh, you know, a step or two and found my way to sing it. And I just thought that's the right song to sing. You know, I happened to be performing it right in the middle of all that happening. And 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 it coincided with a, a television special that was beamed worldwide um, and was hosted by Olivia Newton-John, I remember. And uh, and there I was playing at the stadium in Berlin with Tina Turner and I did help and it got beamed all around the world. That's beautiful. And, and of course the song is both a triumph and a cry for help and, and, totally. and to be there in the arms of history really must've been something. Yeah. It was seeing the, the, uh, the, the jubilation, but also the confusion and the uncertainty was, and I was only 25 or 26. Um, I wish I had experienced that, you know, older, when I was, when I would have been able to, you know, at that time I was, uh, I was so wrapped up in myself and my career. And, um, I probably, I definitely didn't get the nuance of what was around me at that time. And I regret that. You, uh, you mentioned George Martin earlier and production. Um, you were right there from the beginning, right? As a producer on your first album. Yeah, I got I got to produce my to co-produce my first two albums uh, with a an engineer named David Cole, and he was primarily the engineer, although he did ha- definitely contribute to production and and uh, landscape sound landscape and really helped producing my vocals with me and um, and I loved working with him. But but after the second album, I felt like I really wanted to kind of really do things my own way, and I. I've produced all my own records ever since that. Um, but yeah, to have the opportunity to even co-produce my first album was amazing. And that was because the guy who signed me, Bruce Lundvall, um, he said, I love your demos and you produced your demos. Why would I have somebody else come in and change your sound? Like I love your sound. So just here, here's some money, go do it right. You know, kind of thing. That makes all the sense in the world too. Uh, you know, it really does. Yeah. You know, yeah. of course, very different from uh, models, even 10 or 15 years earlier where, you couldn't do anything for yourself, even if you showed the facility, but uh, they must have had and rightly had great confidence in you. Um, I would be remiss not to ask about uh, what it was like to be with Ringo's all-star band, which to my way of thinking has been one of the smartest and shrewdest ways to bring artists together uh, since its inception. I, I think Ringo deserves a lot of credit for such a cool structure that people can work inside. Is it that good inside that structure? Yeah. I mean, there's just so much freedom. Um, he is so again, generous, fun. Oh my God. He's so fun and funny and Ringo's everything you want Ringo to be. Um, and I loved doing that tour with him, but the, and I got to work with the, you know, these incredible players, Billy Squire and Sheila E and Edgar Winter and Hamish Stewart and Rod Argent. And, and that was a really, really, great band. And I can say that it was a great band because we worked very hard to be, to try to be the best band he ever had and serve him. 
So there was no ego within that band, even though we were the all-stars and we were doing some of our own songs as well. Our mission from the start of rehearsals was to serve our boss. And we, there wasn't one show where we weren't all completely focused on being the best band he could have. And he saw that and, and, and I could see his appreciation in that. And then, and then he and I just hit it off during that tour. And, um, and we started writing songs together and going to dinner. And I've, you know, I count him as one of my friends and it's every once in a while, I, 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 I'll be with him and I'll remember that this isn't just Ringo, my buddy, this is Ringo Starr from the Beatles. And, and I have to sort of like shake my head for a second and snap out of it, you know? There's, there's something about watching them, uh, the, the all-star band, you know, you in, in your incarnation, I saw that tour and many of the other ones. And, there's something magical about seeing Ringo, who is, as you just said, he's this icon, yeah. he's this Beatles icon, and to see him, you know, turn around and play on your songs or to play on a Sheila E tune, yeah, <laughs> you know, and and you can tell he's loving it. He loves it. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing, Ken. He loves more than anything, and I'm I do a horrible impression of him, but when people would interview him or talk to him about like, why are you still out here doing this with all you've accomplished? And he goes, I just love to play me drums. And that's really what it is. He, he loves to be a musician with other musicians. And I can't, I remember one night and I, you know, I, I think I did 25 shows with him or something like that. And I would be playing don't mean nothing or should have known better. And I would turn around, like I would turn around to look at the drummer in any band I'm in and I would turn around and see him and I just start laughing. Like what happened to my life? What, could this possibly be me? Could this actually be happening to me? You know, that's, uh, that's ex just extraordinary. And I, I'd love to hear those stories because they confirm just the magic of that enterprise. The other thing, you know, the, the one thing I do want to uh, make a point to say also touring with him convinced me, I mean, I always admired his playing on the records, but, you know, he's a guy who, for whatever reason, has gotten a bad rap as a musician or as, as like being the weak link of the Beatles or whatever. When you play in a band with him, you realize how much bullcrap that is because he is an incredible musician. He, his meter, his, his sense of time and his choices of fills and his musicianship is stunning is absolutely stunning everything fab four is presented by salon.com the premier news politics innovation and arts website for more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4Podcast. Distributed by Salon, 
Everything Fab Four is a wonderful all production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world and everyone has a story.